and friends. Of course, I go by the name of the kid, famous. You and now tuned in to the Tim and Friends show. Hello, education, entertainment, coast to coast. Ball it up, call it entertainment. Let's get this started. Uncle Tim, let's start this show with five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Jesse, Canada, just me, or does it seem like every weekend gives us all much, almost too much to talk about in the sports world. A crazy F1 finale, a remarkably entertaining Grey Cup, a silly 4 o'clock Eastern window in the NFL. Like, am I missing anything here? Like, what the hell is going on? Bruce, there it is. Bruce, there it is. Four and oh, the Canucks under Bruce Boudreaux. It's unreal what's happening in the sports world right now. Oh. Too much news. The Monday morning meeting is just jam-packed. There is too much to talk about. I'm surprised we get it done in the four hours that we do get it done. <laughs> nice. Uh, and oh yeah, I kind of sort of left out the latest reminder that COVID hasn't gone anywhere as both the NBA, NHL, and I guess the NFL dealing with outbreaks of some sort. Listen, I know this ish is heavy and that we're the distraction. We take both, both very seriously and encourage you to seek out real medical information on how you deal with all this. I am only going to report on this stuff as it has to do with sports, and then we'll move on. Because, to be honest, I get that you might be beyond COVID fatigued at this point in time. Here's the deal. Last check, the Calgary Flames had six players and one staff member enter the league's COVID protocols over a 24-hour period, leading to the postponement today of their next three games, including the only game scheduled in the NHL tonight. The Flames were supposed to be in Chicago tonight for the hometown hockey game, but that game, along with Tuesdays in Nashville and Thursdays with Toronto, now postponed in part because the team in the NHL were concerned with border issues. Follow me here for a second. If the players and staff tested positive in the United States, they would not have been able to return to Canada without a lengthy quarantine. Our friend Eric Francis reporting that the players are asymptomatic, which is good news and part of the reason why they got the vaccine. Further testing has been taking place today, and of course, uh, we will continue to bring that to you as it becomes available to us. Now, the NBA has also postponed two Bulls games tonight against the Pistons and Thursday in Toronto as the border issues would play a factor here and could get sticky as we move forward in all leagues. And then, of course, the NFL as well. Rams have lost a couple of key players ahead of a big divisional matchup in the Monday nighter against the Cards tonight. Now, according to another friend, Frank Saravelli, the NHL has had 123 players now enter COVID protocols this season or 17% of the league, and eight games have been postponed. You have to wonder about the NHL's participation in the Olympics at this point, right, Jesse? I don't think there's any question about that not trending in a good direction. Uh, listen, I, there's a deadline. There's no real deadline, but uh, there would be financial costs accrued by the league after January 10th. So look at January 10th kind of as a soft deadline yeah. on when the NHL will decide, but if they don't go, like, what does the Olympic hockey tournament look like all of a sudden? Me and you. <laughs> uh, if you there, there are, they do have uh, contingency plans in place, but if you ask me, it's probably going to be players just opting out. Yeah. Like Robin Leonard already has, yeah. you will see more players opt out, and players who might not otherwise get the opportunity to play in the Olympics 
opting in. But who knows if we have more outbreaks between now and then. Are we, uh, are we good with the positivity of the day? I love it. <laughs> all right. But that's the news. That's what's up. Yeah. And now yeah, we're passing it on. Yeah. That's all we can do. All right. If anything else does come down, we'll bring it to you because it's our job. But let's turn our attention back to the incredible sports weekend with our guy, Jesse. And first things first. All right. What's next, Harold Snaps? <laughs> first things first. We begin on the Canadian gridiron where the Winnipeg Blue Bombers defended their Grey Cup title with a thrilling overtime win over the Ticats. Last night, Hamilton led for most of the game and they had their chances late, but the Bombers pulled it out to become the first back-to-back Grey Cup champs since the Alouettes in 2010. A great game, a very entertaining game that came down to the wire. What was your biggest takeaway from Le Coupe Grey? That it was a damn good game. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't care if you don't like the CFL or you were watching the Bears and Packers. This was Russell Crowe in Gladiator. I know this might cut out. Do you have Russell Crowe in Gladiator on yours? Ah, mine's been... Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? This was... One of the better Grey Cups that I have ever seen. It was very Canadian in the way it broke down. It wasn't maybe the snow that you love seeing, mm-hmm. the snow globe that you love seeing in a Grey Cup. But the wind played a huge factor. It became definitely a part of the strategy. And before we get into any of the individual things, first off, the, the line is so fine. I mean, the Dietrich Nichols getting his fingertips on the ball to knock it away from Acklin on the goal line to Mm -hmm. force the field goal that ended up tying it. Like, that was as close as you can get to ending a game without actually ending a game. And admit it, most of us thought Acklin dropped it until you saw the replay. And we're all like, that close to a win and ending the longest drought in the CFL. The Ticats haven't won a Grey Cup since 1999, but that's the way the ball bounces, G. And it bounced to end the Ticat season, too, off of two defenders before finally being secured. It's just such a fine line. But that said, Winnipeg, start to finish in this entire CFL season, was the best team in the CFL and maybe, maybe among the best teams we have ever seen in the CFL. They had 21 starters and 45 players overall back from the defending mm-hmm. cup champs two years ago, and they dominated the league. It was closer in the playoffs, but they dominated the league this year and played a wonderful fourth quarter with that win to make sure that they're in that group. And shout out Mike O'Shea, by the way, uh, who is now a perfect 6-0 and in Grey Cups as a coach and a player. It's <laughs> That's ridiculous. Uh, do you have a thought one way or another on Tim White's decision to concede a single point and make it a three-point game, uh, and then the Ticats obviously kicking that field goal to tie the game, but uh, do you have a thought one way or another on that? I question it when it happened, but I don't know if enough people understand the entire situation. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even know, if you're a hardcore CFL fan, you know that... Um, this is, the, this is the kick before, by the way. Uh, that was the kick before that sailed right through the end zone and may have had a, a factor in White who caught it just inside the line and kneeled right away. So, <laughs> reaction. It, yeah, the reaction <laughs> it was, was right unbelievable. Away. We're, we're very good. So here's the deal. 
You get it at the 35-yard line yep. in the CFL. A lot of people don't know that. No time ran off the clock. A lot of people don't know that. The previous two kicks that were returned took eight seconds off of the clock. And the game-tying field goal was kicked with six seconds left on the clock. Like, this is way more debatable than most people are making it out to be. Most people are, you gave up the point, you could have won the game with a field goal had you not given up the point, and aren't taking into account the seconds and the yards and the wind because of what Jeremiah Masoli was able to do on that drive, which was unbelievable mm-hmm. for the Ticats because no one was scoring into the win in this game. Isn't there a chance, though, that Tim White could have returned it to the 50 or taken it all the way or taken it into Bombers territory? Like that's, the thing that, that's the thing that sticks out to me. You're taking your opportunity to win the game with a field goal off the table. Like, that was the thing that stuck out to me immediately. It's like, a field goal makes more sense. It's more likely to happen than a touchdown to tie the game right. or to win the game. So, so where were you're taking you on the field off- goal? Where were you on the previous Winnipeg field goal when the tie catch chose the scrimmage from the 35 as you can do in the CFL? Instead of taking a kickoff, mm-hmm. they chose the scrimmage from the 35 right after the field goal. No one's saying jack about that today. Because sometimes, to me, you're just playing the result. And the conversation... Michael Shea said after this game that he thought it was smart. Now, he ended up winning the game, so maybe he can say that. Exactly. And for those who don't know, Orlando Steinauer, head coach of the Ticats, said he had the option. Right. That they let him do whatever he wanted to do. That's not their normal returner, first off. And the previous one, as you saw, went over his head... Through the end zone for what was like a 95-yard when you add the 20-yard <laughs> the end zone yeah. single. Yeah. Right? Like, there were so many things that play into this that I think people are just bringing into account the one play. And I don't know if in a game of that many plays is fair, even though it had that much to do. Like, I'd love to sit down and have this conversation, but it would take us 20 minutes. Yeah. There's Did you know that each return took eight seconds before that? No, that right away. My initial thought right away, which I still believe, is that I was surprised that he would concede the point. Me too. Like, that was my, my gut feeling right away, and I still believe that. Me too, but I researched things. Yeah. And I wanted to go through it. And I wanted to figure out exactly Very what fair. transpired. No, I didn't know that be- prior. Like and I don't know that this was as cut and dry he shouldn't have taken the knee. Yeah. In fact... One of my biggest pet peeves in the NFL is that you never see guys take knees in the end zone. You never see conceded safeties like you see in the CFL late in the game when you're up seven. You want to waste some time? Run backwards. Mm-hmm. You never see that. You only see it in the CFL, right? Like if it's you're a different up, game. If you're up seven with 10 seconds left and they got a timeout, you could run backwards yeah. for 10 seconds, give up the safety, and then kick it off. And you never see that in the NFL. So... It's a different game. I know there's a lot of casuals watching, and I don't know if all the casuals understood all of that. And I decided here in this moment, instead of yelling and screaming my opinion, I would give you the facts behind the decision that went into Tim White. And I, I don't know if Tim White took that all into account. When he took it. <laughs> my gut instinct was he forgot the rule. That, that's what happened. It was not the case whatsoever. He was given the option. And he chose to take a knee. Congratulations to the Winnipeg you, Blue Bombers and a great season for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. There are a lot. There are a lot of folks that wondered if he was just American, didn't realize he was giving that's what up I, the that's point. What, that's what I thought right yeah. away. And, and then obviously you hear what Alondo Steinauer had to say and stuff. Anyways, 
Uh, we could talk about that forever, but we need to move on. Um, you did a monologue before the CFL season that went kind of viral in the CFL circles about the flirtations with the XFL, what it all meant to me. Uh, now that the season is over, what are you thinking about the health of the CFL? Well, we showed you the, the massive ratings last week, so I think we should counter with the ratings for this Grey Cup because I think it's all a part of the conversation. And I think there's going to be a long, drawn-out thought process this offseason mm -hmm. for the Canadian Football League. And this was apparently the lowest Grey Cup ever. And of the 2.873 million who watch, which is a great number, by the way, like it's a big number, and 821,000 of them were 25 to 54, which is the key demo. A lot of people worried that this, um, this league's viewership is old. And if you look at the numbers, over 55, heavy in the CFL. Um, but this has always been a resilient league. Like, rumors of the CFL's demise have been greatly exaggerated over and over and over. They, they brought in American teams to the CFL, and it didn't kill. One guy owned two teams. And it didn't kill uh, two of eight teams at the time, and it didn't kill it. I, I'm, I'm, but well, the one thing that I keep hearing more of is the abandoning of the three down rules and adopting American rules. And I heard it again from TSN this weekend, mm. and it confirmed what I had heard personally. I have said this before. I'm a football fan through and through. You know this. I just love football. Um, and I think that the Canadian Football League's rules are better. But you're never going to convince mm -hmm. someone south of the border or someone who thinks that this should be a feeder league to the NFL that this is the case. It's always going to be an uphill climb. And I wonder, I don't know how quick, but I wonder if we don't get to the point where it's either the history of the league or three down football. And when I did that monologue, one of the key points that I made was one, I love the league, two, I love the rules, but three, if you're if you're poised with the task of choosing the history of the Hamilton Tiger Cats or Winnipeg Blue Bombers or Saskatchewan Rough Riders or four down football, what do you choose? And I don't know if we're there yet. But from what I'm hearing, it's pretty damn close. This is a gate-driven league. They just lost an entire season, mm -hmm. and they had a shortened one this year. It looked wonderful. It was a surreal scene. It was a surreal season. But I just, to me, this could come down to four downs or no league. And that would be a damn shame. And I know a lot of people that would be upset with it. Mm -hmm. But I think you've got to get down to the nitty-gritty on this conversation and really have it. Part of the reason I think your monologue went as viral as it did is because clearly there is a passionate group of CFL fans and they need to figure out a way to grow that passionate group of fans. It's always been a riddle for the CFL, but I believe it still can be done. People love football. Right. People in this country love football. People down south love football. People on this continent love football. Right. But there are tricky issues when it comes to the CFL that down south they don't have to deal with. No. And you've got to figure out a way to grow it. And there could be as many as two other leagues that pop up in North America yeah. in the next couple of years. And if you go to a four-down football, aren't you just competing with them too? Yes. It's difficult. 
at the same time because those guys don't want to go up against the NFL either. Not an easy job to be commissioner of the CFL. The league or three-down football could be a decision this league has to make. Unreal. Uh, Brian Williams, the legend yes. himself, coming up. Uh, we'll hear his thoughts on the Grey Cup. And what I just said. And what you just said. Um, to hockey. The Canucks extended their winning streak to a season-high four games, and Bruce Boudreau became the first coach in franchise history to win his first four games with a 2-1 win over the Canes last night. What has been the biggest difference under Boudreaux? Because uh, things are happening in Vancouver. They're having fun again, Timmy. Yo, that, that, that's the biggest difference. And winning is the great cure-all, right? It, ma- it is the great deodorant. It will mask all that ails you, all that smells. Just put it on, winning, and everything goes away. But th- there is definitely a different feel in Vancouver, the one thing that jumps out at me, though, is this. That's your Demco. 4 0 with a 120 goals against average and a 962 save percentage. Like, when this guy gets hot, mm-hmm. they win games. And he, when he gets hot, he is among, like, we've seen that. We saw it in the bubble, right? Like, he got hot early in his career. You're just like, Holy bleep, this guy can be unbelievable at times. I don't know if it's sustainable, but when you add... Besser's got four goals in four games under Boudreaux. When you add Pedersen, looks like he may be getting going here. There's a different feel, and there's full marks here. But once I see Demko have average games and they win them, then I'll start thinking it's more than just a hot goalie because as we've seen in the NHL and the NHL's history a hot goalie can do a hell of a lot and Thatcher Demko is part of the reason why I thought that the Canucks had a shot here in this specific division and maybe it's not over. We talked about the uh, the Canadian goaltending potential issues of the Olympics if they go with that caveat yeah. of course. The Americans are different. Thatcher Demko, like Thatcher Demko is going to be there. And then you got Connor Hellebuck and Jack Campbell potentially too. So, yeah, Thatcher Demko, like you said it, he can get as hot as any goalie in the National Hockey League. And, yes, the Hurricanes are playing their fourth game in six nights and they didn't have Sebastian Ajo. But nobody's going to feel sorry for the Carolina Hurricanes when especially not Canucks fans who have been put through the ringer so far this season. So no, taking take advantage, the you take the wins. Always. Still a very good hockey team uh, in the Carolina Hurricanes. But yeah, the Besser did four goals in four games. Pedersen playing much better, much more inspired. They're having fun. The Rogers Arena is jumping. Three goals in four games. I said it wrong. And when was the last time you know we saw an atmosphere like that in in 2021 for the Vancouver Canucks. It's just, it it feel, hasn't happened. It feels like a, like it feels like a complete 180 yeah. from where they were with Brian Dumoulin picking up the jersey and throwing it over the back. It's hard the for glass. me. Like it's, it's honestly hard for me to think about uh, a time where a, a team and a fan base has sort of had this drastic of a change in environment. Like the head coach is fist bumping guys. It's what you dream of it's when crazy. you change a coach yeah. or you make changes to a front office. Like you dream of getting a response like this. We'll see how long it's sustainable, but without a doubt, yeah. the, the fans in Vancouver are enjoying the ride and they're going to give them leeway because 90% of them wanted this to happen anyway. So you're going to get a little leeway and the winning masks a lot. Jim Rutherford's going to come up on the show. Uh, we're getting them just after the 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 Pacific hour. Uh, the president 
and interim general manager will join them. Join us. We'll, we'll discuss a lot of this stuff with Mr. Rutherford coming up later. Life on. comes at you fast. Yeah. They got a president now, and they've won four in a row under Bruce Boudreaux. Okay, speaking of fast. Sunday's Formula One title showdown between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen lived up to the hype and much more after a controversial decision. It came down to the final lap and Verstappen passed Hamilton with less than two miles to go to win his first championship. Uh, everyone on Twitter suddenly an F1 expert, Timmy. Was that finish too good to be true? Did you just, Me included. Way. Me included. Did you just give eyebrows for your transition? Did I? I didn't notice. I did. Oh, I'm hearing that I did. I didn't Speaking even, of I didn't fast, even know that was totally subconscious. Uh, oh, man. Was the finish too good to be true? <laughs> it feels like it. Like, the decision to end it the way they did, just like the entire season, felt like it was made for TV. Did it not? Like, it worked, save for the protest. The drama was unbelievable, but as a novice at best, these are things that sports leagues will always be tempted by but have to be very careful with to make decisions that create the most dramatic endings. Like, it's my understanding that the decision after the crash any and, and the safety car restart, any restart that comes a lap after unlapping the five cars between Hamilton and Verstappen normally comes a lap after, not mm. on the same lap, which would have meant that this race would have ended. That was not the case in Abu Dhabi. They made a decision that benefited the drama and gave an advantage to Verstappen, and he took advantage of that advantage. Jesse, you've been all in all season long. Uh -huh. Was that bad or good for the sport? And did I explain it properly? No, you absolutely did. I mean, the, the options were they have a final lap sort of shootout, which they did, which is sort of unprecedented based on the decision they made. Have the lap cars remain uh, between Hamilton and Verstappen for the final lap or let every car through and finish under the safety car, which wouldn't have been good for TV. So I don't have a horse in this race. I didn't bet on the race You're yesterday. Not guy, I'm not a Hamilton a fan. Guy. I'm not a Verstappen fan. Okay. But I did watch the race in its entirety. Mm -hmm. So Ham Lewis Hamilton is up, what, 12 seconds with five laps to go. And you're telling me that the race comes down to one lap with Verstappen right behind him on better tires? Like, yeah. that is the most made-for-TV thing. And I'm not saying that they fixed it for Max Verstappen. What I am saying is that Michael Massey... FIA race director decided, okay, we have all these new eyeballs on F1. It's incredibly popular now. What I can do is let this championship final race end under a safety car, which would be the normal rules. Or I can do something unprecedented and make it incredibly entertaining for the final lap. And I think that's the direction he chose, despite the fact that it's unprecedented. That's, that's the key word here. This is unprecedented, right? Yeah. Did not, did not follow the rule book. The rule book would have said that this would have basically finished under caution. Correct. With the safety car out there, and Verstappen would have finished second. Correct. And the rest of the cars that were in this race did not unlap the five cars exactly. that got out of the way for Hamilton and Verstappen. So one of the great things about Formula One, Timmy, is that you hear the audio 
of the team principals talking to the race director right. and talking to the drivers. And so when this decision was made, or in the process of the decision being made, you heard Christian Warner, team principal for Red Bull, and team principal of Mercedes, Toto Wolff, talking to race director Michael Massey. Let's have a listen to this. Christian to Michael. Yes, go ahead, Christian. Yeah, why, why, why aren't we getting these lap cars out of the way? Just give me, well, because Christian, just give me a second. Okay, my main big one is to get this uh, incident clear. You only need one racing lap. Race control are now saying lapped cars uh, to overtake the safety car. Michael, this isn't right. This race that started with controversy is ending with no, controversy. Michael, no, no, Michael, that was so not right. Go ahead, Toto. You need to reinstate the lap before. That's not right. Toto? Yes. It's called a motor race, okay? Sorry? We went to car racing. So for those who don't know, Verstappen fresh tires, significant performance advantage over Hamilton's 43-year-old harder tires. However, these were choices that Mercedes made along the way mm -hmm. that led to this spot, right? Like yes. Yeah. It's, it's just, is it a foul call late in the game when you know that this could get us to overtime? Or is this like changing possession late in a game when you know it may have went off the wrong guy, but this will make it a hell, hell of a lot more interesting. Like, you got to be very careful with this. I saw a golf analogy on Twitter yesterday that suggested it's like having Tiger and Rory have a chip off on the 72nd hole of a tournament. You give Tiger a driver and you give Rory a wedge and you just see who's going to win. So a lot of people were not happy with it uh, whatsoever. It's called motor racing. What that quote, what that says to me, Timmy, is that they knew they're on TV. Let them race. Make it exciting for the finish. Uh, at Tim and Friends, with your yeah. opinion. I mean, everyone was talking about it. Everyone. Still to come, Canucks president, interim GM, as mentioned, Jim Rutherford will join us live, talking to the media in Vancouver today. Rich Gannon on another wild Sunday in the National Football League. But after the break, a broadcasting legend, 50 years in the business, Brian Williams, his career, the Grey Cup, Tim and friends will be your distraction. I'm not trying to be a fool here, but I I'm just not so sure it's great for the game. If you did that back in the 2000, late 90s, 2000, you get your head taken off. Gary Trent Jr., the lead! GTJ from downtown! You know, we stay together, we fall hard. We came out with one. Here we go. Hamilton needs a touchdown on this possession. Oh, nearly intercepted! Welcome back to Tim and Friends. Jim Rutherford coming up. Rich Gannon, former NFL MVP, coming up. But one day after an instant classic in the Grey Cup, I wanted to bring on a big guest to help me put a surreal scene after a surreal season into perspective. And to be honest, surreal is a wonderful way to describe Sid and I's interactions with this big guest. We got quite simply... Uh, the you, you could probably make a case. This is the goat of Canadian sports broadcasting, and I'm not sure many would argue. He's covered everything, 
everything. Most well known for bringing 14 Olympics into our homes as well as the Grey Cup year after year as well as the conversation with the commissioner that was always must-see TV. 50 years of must-see TV in fact. Ladies and gentlemen, the man, the myth, the legend, he retired earlier this month after those 50. Please help me welcome back Brian Williams to the show. Mr. Williams, so great to Hello. see you. Hello, Tim, and it's great to be with a former voice of the Hamilton <laughs> Ticats. And uh, I have to tell the, your audience, we have an Olympic connection. When I was doing my last Olympics, my 14th in 2012 in London, it's about 10 to 8 London time. I'm going on the air with Lisa LaFlamme with the opening ceremony at 8 o'clock. And they're saying, Brian, sit down. we got to get ready. And I said, I'm talking to Tim and Sid. What are you doing talking to Tim and Sid? You were on the fan, I think, around 3 in the afternoon at yep. the time. So we were live there. And then, of course, the next day, you guys phoned me in London. And you wanted to ask about Usain Bolt and the 100 meters. And I said, you want to talk about the 100 meters? Hang on here just a minute, Tim. There's a guy sitting next to me that knows a thing or two about it. And I put Donovan Bailey on yes, the phone. So we, we have a real, uh, a real Olympic connection. Uh, without a doubt. And, and honestly, uh, one of the most memorable shows was that 2012. And obviously, those Olympic opening ceremonies are always special. That one had particular interest for a variety of reasons. And Sid and I will always be indebted to you for coming on that show just before game time and doing and we and it was just such a natural conversation and yeah. Sid and I literally when the show was over said that was one of the greatest shows we ever did and we turned on seven o'clock and there was Brian Williams seven o'clock Eastern. I'll do the math. I can't do it like you do. Five, it. About five hour time. <laughs> yes. And, and there you were sitting in the opening ceremonies. So, honestly, uh, one of my favorite shows of all time you were a part of. And I will always appreciate that. So, what, how did we get to this point? 50 years. I mean, the Grey Cup was in Hamilton, if I'm not mistaken. Was, when was your first? My first great cup, and I've got to tell you, I signed a chum with the late, great Dick Smythe, radio legend, who when I was in university at Aquinas College in Michigan, we used to listen to the big eight, CKLW, 50,000 watts and sounding like a million, Tommy Shannon, Dick Smythe was the news director. Dick hired me in September of 1970, so 50 years took me through last year. If Dick had said to me, Tim, you're going to work 50 years nonstop in this business, I would have said, heck, 50 years? I want to live for 50 years. So fortunately, I have, and I'm now retiring. But uh, my first Olympics was for Chum. I was reporting. It was 1972. Now, the Olympics yesterday at Tim Hortons Field were the first Olympics in that stadium. I was at two Olympics just a stone's throw away at the old Civic Stadium, which... Um, uh, later became Ivor Wynn, named after Ivor Wynn, the athletic director at McMaster University in uh, Hamilton. But uh, 1972, Chuck Ely, and I saw Chuck at the awards on Friday night, the player awards. Chuck Ely came from the University of Toledo, quarterbacked Hamilton over Ron Lancaster and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders 13-10. The winning field goal was kicked by Ian Sutter. And of course, uh, in 1996, uh, we all remember the Flutie fumble. It was a blizzard. I was sitting with Stephen Brunt at the southwestern <laughs> corner of the stadium. And Tim, you knew well or know yeah. well, the old stadium, Civic, faced east and west. So at night, 
you know, the, the players would have the sun in their eyes on a summer evening. The new one is north and south. But in 1996, Stephen Brunt and I are sitting at my desk. I'm hosting for CBC. And uh, you have the footage. It was uh, a blizzard for much of the game. Doug Flutie with a Flutie fumble, famous Flutie fumble. Quarterback, the Toronto Argonauts, coached by Don Matthews over the Edmonton Eskimos, coached by none other than the late, great Ron Lancaster. And by the way, I saw Danny McManus uh, yesterday. Yes. Quarterback, uh, we, we did a show together, a pregame show in the CFL. Although they lost that game, McManus threw for 413 yards, Tim, and three touchdowns. The first of some, they say I've done 40 great cups. I think it's more like 35. It's somewhere 35 to 40. That is unbelievable. So we're like, I mean, last night's game was unbelievable. The scene was unbelievable. Having a team host the Grey Cup and especially the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And I'm not saying this because they used to be the voice of the Hamilton Tiger Cats, but the longest drought in the league. They don't often get Grey Cups in that city. It just felt like another great slice of Canadiana last night in Hamilton. Yeah, it really was. And uh, had the Toronto Argonauts been there and not the Ticats, I got to tell you, folks, it would not have been the same. I don't think Toronto fans would have uh, uh, traveled over. They're not traveling even down to watch the games in Toronto. But the Hamilton fans, it was sold out. The, the building was alive. The game was exciting. It reminded me of, uh, of old-time football, and it was great to see uh, a lot of long-time friends. So, so what jumps out to you? Like, obviously, the Olympics and the Grey Cup. Like, I, I couldn't think, you know, if you asked me to think back my 25 years and I would stumble through this, like, what jumps out in your mind is, I mean, you've got the Order of Canada. You've got the Commissioner's Award. There's so many things along the way. Are there a few things that you can think of that just kind of pop for you? Well, the Olympics always popped to me, but, uh, you know, I was so fortunate to do Queen's Plates, uh, working with Jim Bannon, skiing with Ken Reed. Uh, I did car racing with Jackie Stewart, the Grand Prix in Montreal. I worked with the late, great Bobby Unser. His brother Al just died a couple of days ago. Bobby died last May. I did the Indies in both Toronto and Vancouver. I did tennis. I did baseball with John Cerruti. I was at the Blue Jays' first training camp down in Florida. Uh, as a reporter for CBLT Channel 6, the CBC station. So, you know, there's so many, uh, I don't have a favorite for anything. And someone said, was there ever pressure? And I said, I felt pressure every time I went on the air live because you're wanting to do your best job. Probably a highlight will be for me, Vancouver, because Canada hosted Montreal in 76, the Winter Games in Calgary in 88. Canada, the only country to host two Olympics and never, never, Tim, win a gold medal. So, of course, we have a uh, high jump by Greg Joy in Montreal in 76, Liz Manley, Brian Orser, figure skating silvers in Calgary in 88. As I say, Joy had a silver in Montreal. So heading to Vancouver, everyone in the country is saying, who is going to be the first Canadian to win gold in Canadian soil? Well, it happened on the Sunday night. It was Alex Billadeau. The uh, freestyle skier from Quebec, I'll never forget it. His family came in the studio with me. And that first gold medal that Billado won literally opened the floodgate yeah. for a total of 14 <laughs> medals, gold medals, the most gold ever at the Winter Olympics, ending with the golden gold by Sidney Crosby in overtime against the United States, as described by Chris Cuthbert. And I'll tell you, I don't want to go long here. I had a meeting with the International Olympic Committee President, Dr. Rogue, in the first week, and I said, you know, the streets are full. There's the excitement here in Vancouver, the, the atmosphere. Have you ever seen anything like it? 
He said, only in Sydney, Australia. And it was a bit bit more exciting, a bit more intense. I was in Sydney. I saw. I talked again to Dr. Rogue in the second week of the Vancouver Olympics. Tim, and he said, you know what? Vancouver has even surpassed Sydney. Oh. If it, you know, once Bilodeau opened that door, it felt like, and maybe this is what you and Dr. Rowe were talking about, it felt like we were all John Montgomery walking down the road with a pitcher of beer. Like it just felt like a wonderful party. Well, you know your stuff, and it's great you mentioned John Montgomery because it, it was a party. And, and I'll tell you something. Most of the mail I got was from people over the years, over 14 Olympics, who would say, Mr. Williams, we're not sports fans, men, women, uh, but we watch the Olympics day and night. And my answer to that is very few, uh, and this is John Montgomery, very few people go to a bar on Saturday afternoon to watch Skeleton. Skeleton <laughs> was in the Olympics yep. in 1948, yep. didn't come back to Vancouver in 2010. But in Skeleton, when John Montgomery won that gold medal, the whole country was alive. And as you mentioned, he came through the Whistler Village with that uh, pitcher of beer. He was a national hero and uh, remains so today. Uh, so are you, my friend. Like, I, 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 we got like less than two minutes left here, and I have about a thousand questions that I could ask you. But I, I just, there, there's a part of me as, and the one thing that Sid and I always wanted to make sure that we did was um, show some reverence to those who came before us. Show some reverence to um, those who kind of blazed the trail. And as we move into this, you know, 24-hour sports news cycle, I just, I, I just want to give you a tip of the cap, good sir, because when I was the radio play-by-play voice of the Hamilton Tire Cats, you'd always pop in, you'd say hello, we'd sh- share a conversation. When Sid and I were little dinks on a radio show just before an Olympic opening ceremony, you treated us the same as if we had the national TV show, and I just want to say thank you. Well, you know what? We got so many good young broadcasters today. I followed in the in the footsteps of legends, and I'm grateful to Don Chevrier, Ernie Afghanis, Ted Reynolds, Don Whitman, Tom McKee. So, you know, the business changes, and I learned from some of the greats, and I've been fortunate to work with and for great people at CHUM, CFRB, CBC, and, of course, CTV and TSA. Uh, our good friend, the former host of The Nationals, moved on to a podcast. Uh, do, is there anything, do, do you want to do anything more? I don't know. I, I, I'm just ready to retire. I'm 75. I was talking to a friend yesterday who has Parkinson's disease, and I said to him, people are telling me, you know, why are you retiring? You don't look 75. You can still no, do it, blah, don't. blah, blah. They're probably BSing a bit. <laughs> but you know what he said to me? Yeah. Retire when you're healthy. He now has Parkinson's, didn't retire healthy. Right. So it's a lesson to me. My father died uh, just about 102. When he was 100, I said, have you anything you, you might change in your life? You know what he said to me? Mm. He said, yes, I would retire earlier. So I'm just happy to retire. I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got grandchildren, three daughters, uh, my wife. I'm busy. So uh, I've got all I can handle right now, but I'm enjoying this. Uh, there's a bunch of different ways I could end this, but I'll just say this. Thank you, Mr. Williams. Thank you, Tim. Always a pleasure. The best to sit. I'm going on with he and Dina prior to the uh, Beijing Olympics, I promise. But always good to see you, my friend. And I remember you as the uh, outstanding voice of the cats. Thank you, sir. Be well, okay? Thank you. You be well. Your family in these crazy times. Be healthy. You too. The great Brian Williams, everybody. All right. <laughs> just looking at me, shaking your head over He's there. Just, it's just Brian so Williams. eloquent and yeah. so cool. Legend. Jesse just gave me, like, every once in a while, Jesse will give me the eyes. And the eyes were just like, 
Oh, I think it's awesome. okay to be starstruck by Brian Williams. Well, but that's like that's what I spoke about the reverence. Like it's okay every once in a while to be transported like a real sports fan because that's what we're here for. Yeah. Like honestly, it's the, the one thing. The persona. Yeah. The one thing that separates this show, I've always thought, from some of the others, is we are real diehard sports fans, and we love it. And every once in a while, taking me back to you know me sitting on the floor with my dad watching Ben Johnson in 1988, 100%. right? And it's Brian Williams' voice. Like, he's the soundtrack to so many things mm -hmm. for so many people Very cool. in this country. All right, we'll take the break. When we come back, the Raptors close out a seven-game homestand against the Kings tonight. Uh, we'll discuss where the team is at at this point in the season as Tim and Friends rolls on right here on Sportsnet, Sportsnet 360. And I'm being told COVID updates as well. Okay, we'll do that too. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Brian Williams here on Tim and Friends. That's pretty good. I'm not going to lie. One of the few that I do well. Few? What are some other ones? I know. Uh, I, do, I do a great Yakov Shmirnov. I don't know if you remember the uh, pre uh, Cold War, or the pre end of the Cold War Russian. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> it's a kind of a joke. <laughs> so, so, do you know? Do no, know, doesn't and know nobody it, knows Yakov no. Shmirnov. No. Yeah, I wouldn't even know how to spell it um, to look it up in Google, to be honest. He's Russian Machine. He's the first one that gave you Russian Machine. Okay. He was like a Cold War comedian, and as soon as the Cold War ended, basically his career went away. But he was. Oh, so that Russian was his whole bit. His whole bit was in Russia. I mean, that's kind, of, that's kind of a tough bit to have. Like, you want the, the Cold War to just prolong, like, go on as long as possible so you have the bit. Yeah, yeah and he would put on the accent. For, when I'm in Hamilton, I shop at Finley and Greenwood. That's good, too. I, I don't even know. It's just a, a Russian accent. All good. right. So enough laughing. Let's get back to the COVID oh, no. update that we have from across multiple leagues. Uh, we had already told you that the Calgary Flames had six players, one staff member. They've postponed their next three games. The Chicago Bulls, uh, they had postponed their next two games, including one in Toronto later this week. Mm -hmm. uh, two members of the Rams are out for Monday night, including Jalen. I mean, two pretty big names out for the Rams tonight. Good thing you got the Cardinals. And uh, it's Higby and Ramsey, for those who it don't is, know. Yeah. But we, uh, we got a couple more updates uh, spanning a couple more sports. Uh, the Carolina Hurricanes have tweeted out that Sebastian Ajo, Seth Jarvis, and a member of the training staff have entered COVID protocol and will remain in Vancouver. Obviously, Sebastian Ajo did not play against the Canucks last night. Uh, I believe Seth Jarvis did. Uh, but that's the news from the Carolina Hurricanes. And then as it pertains to the Toronto Raptors, it seems Matt Devlin and Jack Armstrong have come in contact with an individual outside of the organization who has since tested positive for COVID-19. So they're going to stay away from the Raptors, from Scotiabank Arena, from the organization for a little bit of time here. Uh, the game, which is on TSN tonight, will be called by Paul Jones and Leo Routens. Tomorrow's game on Sportsnet will be called remotely by uh, Eric Smith and Amy Audibert. Uh, so that is the covid News that Obviously, we have. we're I mean, wishing the absolute best for two uh, classic friends of the show, for Matt everyone. Devlin yeah. and Jack Armstrong, as well as everyone else who is in this spot. And it just, it seems like uh, just when we thought we might be getting out of it, uh, we're right back in it. And uh, this isn't just sports, this is society, and it's all around, and it's almost hard to escape right now. 
there's no, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. Uh, and I know, I mean, obviously everybody's getting tested, but uh, Matt and Jack thinking of the community and thinking pe- of people who would be at the arena tonight and I'm sure making this decision. So uh, kudos to them and obviously yeah. hope, hope they stay healthy. And part of the, uh, the statement from MLSE uh, on Matt and Jack was this was not mandated by the NBA or MLSE. They've tied, this is a, an abundance of caution. They have uh, decided yeah. to stay away for now. I mean, and th- self monitor. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the reality that uh, numbers are are taking up here because uh, 37 positive COVID tests in the National Football League on Monday alone, and that includes Kadarius Tony uh, of the Giants and yeah. Alexander Madison of the Minnesota Vikings, in addition to Jalen Ramsey and Tyler Higby, who won't be playing tonight uh, for the Rams. So, uh, this is the news. And yeah, we're going to see. We got to talk about the news. You and I talked about this in the morning meeting, but it, it feels like we're going to see new protocols introduced in a bunch of. Like, I mean, courtside seats in the NBA. Yeah. Like, and then you've got a whole team out for a little while. Yeah. Uh, we're going to see some changes in the next little while. Uh, meanwhile, the Canucks resurgence appears to be resurgence appears to be on four straight wins to start life under Bruce Boudreau, while Jim Rutherford has taken over as president and interim GM. He will join us live coming up next. His vision of the team and where they're at right now. Tim and Friends rolls on. And now time for Real Sports Talk with Tim McAuliffe and Friends of the show. Thank you very much. Sheepdogs back here for hour number two on Tim and Friends. Full hour on Sportsnet and Sportsnet 360, which includes former NFL MVP Rich Gannon on, guess what? The NFL and Canucks President Jim Rutherford will join us in mere moments from now. He talked to the media in Vancouver earlier this afternoon. Rogers Hometown Hockey will follow us at 7 p.m. Eastern from Sydney, Nova Scotia, but there will be no game following Rogers hometown hockey tonight. The NHL has postponed Flames games through Thursday as they deal with COVID cases within the team. Six players and a staff member have entered the league's COVID protocol. Flames were scheduled to play in Chicago tonight, but didn't even travel there due to border concerns. Tomorrow's game against the Predators and Thursday's game against the Leafs are also postponed while team facilities have been shut down until further notice. This goes beyond the NHL, the NBA, and the Bulls games. Tuesday against the Pistons and Thursday in Toronto have also been postponed. The Bulls currently have 10 players in COVID protocols. These are the first NBA games to be postponed this season due to COVID. Uh, As mentioned earlier, Jim Rutherford will join us in mere moments from now. The Canucks held a news conference with Rutherford and Chairman Francesco Aquilini today. And Aquilini had this to say about one of his new hires. So Jim was at the top of my list uh, for candidates uh, to come in and turn this franchise around. Um, I'm thrilled that not only did he accept the job, but he really embraced it. Um, You know, his job is to bring a winning team, um, bring in a winning culture. You know, we talked, I talked about culture last week into this organization and to build a leadership team that can, you know, bring us the Stanley Cup to Vancouver. 
Well, you just heard the chairman talking about Jim Rutherford, the brand new president and interim GM, who is kind enough to join us now. Jim, welcome back to the show. We really appreciate you taking the time. Nice to be with you. Uh, this fella Jay-Z once told me that 72 is the new 52, or thereabouts. <laughs> uh, my point is not about the age, but you could have gone quietly into the night with the cups, the Hall of Fame resume and jacket. What was it about the Canucks that brought you back this quick? Well, I, I was enjoying myself, I will say that. You know, uh, being at home more and spending more time with my family and being stress-free. But Francesco, he called and uh, and wanted to meet, and he was even kind enough to fly and, and come to my house. And for an NHL owner to take the time to do that and have a four-hour visit and talk through all the all the history of the Canucks and and where he wants to go, it it just turned out to be a really good meeting. And I work on gut feelings, and it's the same as when I went to Pittsburgh. I had a good gut feeling about it. And, I enjoyed my time in Pittsburgh, and it was the same in Vancouver. You know, I know the passion of hockey here in British Columbia. They love the Canucks, and uh, I see the uh, the atmosphere in the building, and and so hopefully I can do some things here to get this team to be a consistent playoff team and work our way to be a contender. Tim, how much of that gut feeling had to do with the pieces already in place? Like, did you look at the team, or was it just the feeling that you got from the owner? No, I. Uh, whether I'm working or not, I watch hockey games every night. And, of course, being in the East, you get Vancouver as the prime game late at night. And I always stay up right to the end of all the games. So I see the Canucks play a lot. Um, I saw what everybody else saw. The team underperformed the first 20 games and it was obvious that uh, that they were better than what they were doing and how much better that is nobody really knows yet I mean they've got a little bump here with the new coach for the first four games but certainly everyone can see that there's there's a bunch of good players on this team and there's a high skill skill level we have a franchise goalie which is is what everybody wants to start building towards a championship so there's a lot of good things about this. And uh, I think we'll have a better understanding here, you know, within the next month or so as we watch the team play more. And uh, personally, I think there's the, the team might even be better than, uh, than what people thought it was, was supposed to be. So hopefully that's right. And uh, we'll see what changes we have to make at that point in time. But uh, there's... There's a lot to like about this team, even though it was a disappointing first 20 games. You talked about how much BC, how much Vancouver, how much the Lower Mainland uh, loves this team and that you could feel it. Everyone talks about Canadian markets being different. And this one in particular, a lot of folks say it's a little bit different and that communication with this fan base is really important. Do you feel the same way? Well, I don't know. I haven't been here long enough, but I... I think communication with the fan base is important always. I mean, the fans, they're, uh, uh, they're so important to, to sports. And, and uh, they, they deserve the right to know mostly what's going on. I mean, uh, we can't tell them every time we're negotiating to make a trade or something like that. But, but certainly that they have an idea of, of, uh, of what our vision is and where where we're trying to go and where we want to go and so 
the general manager has a responsibility to do that on a fairly regular basis when asked. Um, when, a new, you know, for now it'll be me. And when we appoint a new general manager, it'll be that person. And uh, at that point in time, of course, I'll give my vision, you know, not as much on a regular basis, but at different times. But like I said, the fans are so important and they deserve it. Uh- one of those visions, obviously, is a new GM, as you mentioned. And one of the headlines I read after today's news conference was Rutherford has a list of 40 GMs. Obviously, this is an important decision. Uh, but do you know exactly what you're looking for when it comes to the GM? I do. I do. I have the, the list, and they're in different uh, categories. You have you know, one category of guys that have already have experienced the GM's job in this league. And then you have the other list of guys that have worked long and hard as assistant and, and learned along the way and are working towards becoming an entry-level general manager. And I've had good fortune in mentoring um, some of these younger guys, and there's guys around the league now that have worked with me. So yeah. what I'd like to see in a, in, a, in a general manager is a winner, a guy that, that knows how to win, a guy that... Uh, um, is, is hardworking. He's loyal. Um, he's got a, a good sense for hockey talent. Uh, he he believes in in what I believe in is the, how the team should play, which is fast. Which hopefully is fast because we have good skaters. If we don't have good skaters, we have to play quick. Uh, you have to play the way we played last night. I mean. Carolina is one of the quickest teams in the league, and I give our players and coaches credit for for handling that game last night. And uh, so it, it, it's all about communication, being a team player within hockey ops, um, knowing what players we need, um, knowing the draft, uh, what players that we want to draft, knowing how to make trades, and uh, having the kind of team that, that we want, that uh, quick fast team playing with a lot of tempo and uh having a balanced lineup where the coach can roll anybody out on the ice at any time it doesn't matter who they're playing against do you have an expectation of how long that process will take i don't i'd like to do it sooner than later but in a lot of cases i'm going to have to get permission from other teams to talk to uh, certain people um Usually they give permission because the player's getting or the person's getting an elevated position, but that takes a little bit of time. We have to go through the process. The main thing is to get it right. And uh, sure, I'd I'd like to have it done by tomorrow, but it's not going to be done tomorrow. It's it's going to be done at the appropriate time. Describing the way you want this team to play, it seems like you've got a pretty damn good coach to do that, don't you? We do. We do. I think that... uh, I think Bruce is really the right guy here. You know, like I, I, I like Travis Green as a coach, and I think for the most part, what I saw, he did a good job. But sometimes you need to change it up, and uh, based on where these players are at uh, now, what they went through the first part of the season, uh, Bruce is that positive confidence motivator that gets a lot out of his players. Does the Forno start under Boudreaux give you a little bit more leeway to maybe take some time on bringing in a GM? Like, did it feel like there may have been pressure to appoint someone as GM quicker had there not been a nice little start under Boudreaux? No, 
no, it's got nothing to do with it because um, I'm capable of doing the job. It's not why I'm here. At this point in my career, being president is uh, is a better role for me. But um, you know, I certainly have the experience and, and had some success at it. So uh, so I can do it for as long as we need to do it. So I don't feel any pressure. Before I let you go, I love this stat that Bruce Boudreaux scored his first career goal against you. Did you know that before you guys uh, came together again in Vancouver? Yes. <laughs> Bruce and I have been friends for a long time. We were we were good friends when we were younger, you know. But but uh, like I tell Bruce, he had trouble scoring on other guys. So <laughs> as a friend, I wanted to make sure he, he got on the scoreboard. <laughs> did you uh, did you remember it? I mean, obviously, people have played this goal a couple of times uh, since he came together again in Vancouver. But did you remember the goal at all when people started mentioning it to you again? Do you know how many goals are scored on me in the ending? <laughs> a couple. No. <laughs> I did not remember it, no. Um, but I've seen the replay as you guys play it over and over. And uh, <laughs> I probably could have played it a little different if I didn't want my friend to score. Yeah, it looks like he caught you leaning there. Maybe we can get a few. <laughs> Next time you join us, Jim, I guarantee we'll have a couple of glove saves and a beauty, okay? <laughs> okay, I'd appreciate that. Uh, listen, I'm not sure if you know this, but you were on our first TV show after you traded for Phil Kessel with the Penguins. Two cups later, yeah. not a bad deal. Appreciated it then, appreciate it now. Thanks for doing it. I do remember that, you by do? the way. So, anyways, look forward to seeing you again. All right, be well. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Okay. There is uh, Jim Rutherford of the Vancouver Canucks, who uh, obviously thoroughly enjoyed the goal scoring of Bruce Boudreaux. That was pretty cool, too. Who looked a little bit different back then, yeah. didn't he? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. I've been giving you the eyes a, a, a couple times today because uh, first the Brian Williams, Jim Rutherford was really good, and then we rolled a vintage uh, video yeah, as well. I wish we had the mask, too, because he had a very cool old-school, like, 1980s yeah. mask on that was, uh, you know, somewhat intimidating just because uh, of of the uh, the horror movies that ended up right. they, they ended up having the eyes around the the winged wheel around the eyes. Great pass too. I don't know who the defenseman was, what? but that was an awesome pass. That was a Carlson esque. What's the defenseman doing up there? Not quite a saucer. I don't think it was a saucer, but it was a great pass. Look at all the great buckets though. This, there yeah. you got the Jofa there. You got the Northland on Boudreaux, I believe. That's the oh yeah. Look I kind of like those Leaf jerseys too. What are your thoughts Look on Look at Boudreaux looking yeah. a wee bit different, eh? Stud. Yeah. Big smile Total on stud. the face. Uh, were they chanting, um, Bruce, there it is? No, I don't think the song had come out like there. The Gardens? Yeah. No? No, I don't think the song come had come out there. Bruce, your daddy? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Somebody didn't hear that last week, so I got to chuckle at him. He wasn't here. We, uh, why don't we take the break? <laughs> All right, fine. When we come back, uh, John Tortorella made headlines this weekend for his on-air comments, uh, this time about the Zegris to Milano. If you haven't seen it, we'll play it for you and then give our opinions on it next right here. Tim and friends, Jesse Rubinoff, and you right here on Sportsnet and Sportsnet 360. Welcome back to Tim and Friends. The Flames and Hawks, if you're just joining us, postponed tonight, but the show will go on for Rogers Hometown Hockey from Sydney, Nova Scotia, with a preview of what you'll see. Our friends, Ron and Tara, who will follow us at 7 p.m. Eastern on Sportsnet.
So obviously a bit of a shuffle for Ron, Tara, and the rest of the crew in Sydney, Nova Scotia, because the game has been postponed after them. So they'll tell the stories that they normally tell and obviously give some updates on the situation in the NHL and surrounding the Calgary Flames, who, if you're just joining us, had six players and one staff member put on COVID protocols. And because of an abundance of caution, crossing the border and having to come back, uh, the NHL has postponed their next three games. Uh, all right. Got a tweet from Brian Leach, who is an oftentimes contributor here on the show. Mm -hmm. And after our conversation uh, with Jim Rutherford about Bruce Boudreaux scoring his first career goal against Mr. Rutherford, Leach writes in and says, is this Bruce Boudreaux or Ken Reed? I seriously can't tell. And if you look really closely, this, this might get Kenny really excited, but doesn't it look like a cross between Kenny Reed and Colby Armstrong? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, <laughs> that's, that's one Ken way to Reed get it. If Reed and Colby Armstrong yeah. had a baby, it would be Bruce Boudreaux apparently at the age of, I think, around 20. That is the helmet that Ken would be wearing too. So it's no, just, Kenny's got the Jofa. The Jofa. Right? Kenny's got the old but school. The old Jofa. school. The old school look. Like Kenny Actually, is going to be absolutely few. thrilled um, that you just <laughs> you just said it looks like him and Colby Armstrong. No wonder. Together. No wonder that the love affair between Armdog and Ken Reed exists because little did we know that Bruce Boudreaux had somehow brought them together in a cacophony of something to make that picture, which is unbelievable. Uh, Ken actually tweeted about Colby Armstrong yesterday. I have it on my computer. Guys. Just, I love this man. I mean, this was Colby talking about uh, his pregame meal strategy in the NHL. So you are going to get a lot of love from Ken Reed for saying that it looked like Ken Reed and Colby Armstrong. And uh, Brian wasn't the only person uh, to think that Boudreaux looked a little bit like Ken oh Reed. Oh, my God. Simmer writing in, saying Boudreaux has a likeness to Ken Reed. If you look at him on the bench after his first goal, check it out. So whether, uh, unless, <laughs> unless Brian so and Simmer are in cahoots and they, they plan this, we got multiple people writing in and saying that young Bruce Boudreaux looks like uh, Kenny Reed. Uh, compliment or diss to Bruce Boudreaux, who is a regular consumer of all sports media. Uh, in fact, he once, I don't know if you have heard this story. Did you know that? When uh, the famous 24-7, when it looked as though he had the barbecue sauce yeah, yeah, on his yeah. face, uh, Sid and I did a radio show that was broadcast on TV, and we were talking about the barbecue sauce on Bruce Boudreaux's face, and he told us it wasn't, it was a skin irritation that had caused the redness on his face, mm -hmm. and that it wasn't barbecue sauce altogether, and felt like he was being disparaged. So if he's watching right now, am I in trouble again for comparing him to Ken Reed, or our viewers... Comparing him to Ken Reed? No, no, no. You're not going to get in trouble again. Or is no, it a compliment? Kenny's a stud. No, no way. Kenny's a stud. Kenny's a stud. He's going to be, <laughs> Bruce will be totally fine with that. Right. And Bruce was a young stud as well, so. Speaking of NHL coaches, Bruce Boudreaux over the weekend, uh, sorry, not Bruce Boudreaux, but from Bruce, Bruce on Boudreaux, the mind. That's all good. Yeah, uh, to John Tortorella over the weekend, who weighed in on the Zegris Milano goal, the Michigan assist, and drew the ire of many. For those who haven't seen it, uh, let's play it for you. It's tremendously skilled. Uh, for Sonny Milano even to yell Michigan in the middle of a play, uh, in a game is, is skill. That's a skilled play. My, my position, though, is, is it good for the game? Like, I hear Ray saying all the kids are doing it now, okay, in practice and stuff like that. Uh, I'm not so sure. 
Uh, and again, I don't, I'm not trying to be a fool here, but I, I'm just not so sure it's great for the game. If you did that back in the 2000, late 90s, 2000, you get your head taken off. Uh, it, it's, it, it's cool, you know, it, it's cool to watch and all that, but I'm not so sure it's good for the game. All right, do you want to roundly, like, just say he's wrong? Uh, there is one point that he makes that actually is true. If you did try that in the early 2000s, you probably would have got your head taken off. Right, but the, the game's evolved, and I think that most people watching that are happy that the game has evolved from the point where you get your head taken off for doing that. Yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. <laughs> okay. I, 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 don't, I don't So know. the good for the game part of this is kind of sort of ridiculous, is it not? Yeah, I mean, I, I look at this play, Timmy, and, and what I think about is, like, Steph Curry changed the game of basketball by shooting from where he shoots. And right. at the beginning, people were like, oh, like, why is he taking shots showing from the, the logo? Showing up the opponent. Showing up the opponent. And now, like, Steph Curry is considered one of the top ten greatest basketball players of all time, and everybody thinks that he changed the game. And now look at Trey Young, who grew up watching Steph Curry and all these guys. They, they all do it now. Right. And it changed the game. for It made the NBA more exciting. So... When I look at that Trevor Zegers play, that's sort of the same thing. It's like introduce new creativity and new dimensions into the game. How can that be a bad thing? Yeah, I, the, here's, there's two things here. One, like when I was young in the 80s, mm -hmm. a lot of people that thought they were tough would say Wayne Gretzky was soft and that he can't play the way he plays. He's going to get killed in the NHL. And the NHL adjusted because the skill was so good that if anyone touched this guy, they were going to eat it because the NHL realized what this meant to the league and, oh, the way he carries it over the line and, like, he's going to get killed. And then they adjust because you realize the guy is unbelievable, right? So it's okay. This is The part of this is, like, it's okay for John Tortorella to give his opinion. It's also okay for John Tortorella to be wrong, it's okay for you to disagree with John Twitter. But why were so many people just wanting to jump on Twitter and get the W? That's a really, really good question. I was thinking the same thing because he actually said it. And he said, I'm not trying, like, I'm not trying to do this to stir the pot or anything like that. I'm genuinely, that's how he feels. And you know how John Tortorella coaches? Like, he's a hard-nosed coach. He's block shots as much as you can, play a hard-checking style. That is not... John Tortorella hockey, and that's okay. He's an analyst that they decided to pay to bring him on. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. This is the problem. Like, I feel like people are screaming for this diversity of opinion unless the opinion disagrees with totally. them. Totally. And then they scream and yell that person down. Like, just listen to it. Take it in. If you don't agree with it, move on. Like, it's not like he was saying anything offensive. To Like, he was saying what it used to be, what it is, and... I think one of the things that he didn't articulate that I know Elliot Friedman said that uh, Tortorella said sometimes you, um, you can motivate the other team by showboating or making them look bad and that was part of the equation on that. He didn't say that and if he had said it maybe more people would understand why he was saying it but like, I just don't get this age that we're in right now where if you don't agree with it, you have to get... Like, is it because life is so tough right now and that we're taking so many L's just on the day-to-day -day period that if you get a W that's easy on the internet, you take it and you run with it? Yeah. I like, think, is it that simple? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's society in general. It's not just this. No, it's, it's not just every sports. issue that it's we everywhere. See. Yeah. It's if everywhere. you disagree with it, 
Oh, yeah. this guy's an idiot. Get rid. No, just listen to it. Have the. You can shut him down if you want, but you don't have to like make it personal. Just disagree with the opinion and move on. Let me ask you a question. If you're the opposition and someone pulls a move like that, does that ruffle your feathers in any way? Uh, it it depends. Like to the point. Okay, so there, yes, it could inspire you and and make you want to play harder, which isn't a bad thing at all. Yeah, but, like but, uh, we would feel like you just got humiliated by one of the great. Like just like if you got undressed, it's great skill, right? As a defenseman that undresses you, but you're pissed off, right? It only becomes an issue if like it, it becomes physical to the point of you do something that's against the rules. Well, like, you can even see the aggressive like once. Uh, the defenseman, and I'm missing who that is, but once the defenseman realized he was going to the Michigan, got real aggressive, yeah. really quick, because he thought he was going to come, thought Zegris was going to come around the net and try and Mike leg it. Yeah. And he got really aggressive with it. But listen, there's aggressiveness in a lot of different areas. That doesn't mean you stop trying to figure out new ways to score goals, yeah, what, which is what they did. What would hockey be? What would sports be if we weren't Without creativity. Evolving? Right. That's life. Right. You have to evolve. All right, time for a break. When we come back, our Monday afternoon quarterback, Rich Gannon, will join us as we discuss a wild one between the Bills and the Bucks and beyond. Tee up a great looking Monday nighter between the Rams and the Cards as well. Tim and Friends rolls on on Sportsnet. On Sportsnet 360. The Raiders, Yannick Ngakwe gathering his teammates right on the logo. Jacobs trying to loop to the outside, slammed down, Kansas City's got the ball, touchdown! You can't start the game better than that defensively. And would you touchdown! And Kansas City is rolling. Herbert stops, launches deep, Jalen Guyton, he's got it! Touchdown Chargers, what a throw! It is a touchdown, the game is over. And the San Francisco 49ers pull it out. He's got Davis, and the Bills have another touchdown. I think we got a game. Yes, I know we do. And we are tied at 27. Connecting, that's Perriman, taking it all the way for the win. Another unbelievable weekend in the NFL will be capped by a pretty good Monday nighter despite the COVID absences between the Cards and the Rams. We bring in our Monday afternoon quarterback, Rich Cannon, <laughs> former NFL MVP. Rich, welcome back to the show. Thanks for doing this. Tim, always look forward to it, my brother. Uh, nice. Uh, let's start with the Bills and the Bucks. And a lot of people have a lot of different opinions on this game. Is there a moral victory for the somewhat reeling Buffalo Bills in taking this game to overtime after being down 24-3? to I don't think there are any moral victories in this profession. I would say this. You know, when they were trailing 27-10, Josh Allen put that team on his back and really, you know, forced the game into overtime. I, mean, I thought he made some big-time throws in the fourth quarter, too fourth quarter touchdown passes I and mean, he rushed for over 100 yards he passed for over 300 yards the problem Tim is they're so dependent and reliant on one player offensively I mean they went through the whole first half of the game and didn't have a, a running back with a single carry 
I just think that they're so reliant on Josh Allen to make plays with his arm, with his legs, to run for first downs, to rush for touchdowns, that they need to be they need to be more balanced. They need to get some production from someone other than Josh Allen. And defensively, you know, they, they, they didn't play their best game. There's no question about that. And again, you go up against Tom Brady, you have to be perfect. You have to be on the screws. You have to be precise and exact. And they and they get up some big plays. And uh, look, this team's lost four of the last six games. I still believe this is a playoff caliber team. But it's amazing to think that you know, after week five, they were tied with the, for the, the, the number one seed in the AFC. And now they're the seventh seed. I mean, they're going in the wrong direction. They need to get things turned around quickly. Okay, we, we, we all know that stats are like swimsuit models. They show a lot, but they don't show everything. <laughs> so we have a little game that we have on this show called Super Stat or Meaningless Number. And that's to tell us whether or not this stat tells us anything. The Bills are 0-5 in games decided by seven points or less. Is that a super stat or a meaningless number? It's a super stat. I think it tells you a lot about a lot of these games in the NFL come down to you know, making a play in the fourth quarter, getting off the field on third down, you know, converting a third down offensively. And I just think you look at some of the issues that they've had. They played really well against lesser opponents, not as good and not as consistent against better teams. I think we've seen that the last couple of weeks. And that's a concern right now, I'm sure, for Sean McDermott. I think their, their, their inability at times to adjust in-game. We saw it two weeks ago against the Patriots yeah. where they didn't have answers for the running, their run defense till late in the fourth quarter when it was, when it was too late. And I just think that that's, that's something they have to look at. I mean, uh, I still have a lot of confidence in this football team. I think they're well-coached. I think they're a tough team physically. Uh, I think they showed great uh, toughness yesterday just coming back. I mean, you know, you're down 17 points with, a, with 11 minutes to go in the game, and they, they forced it into overtime. I think that speaks volumes about, you know, Josh Allen and, and I think the overall toughness of this football team. But as you said, there are no moral victories. They've lost four of the last six. They've got to quickly get things turned around. All right, so the Bucks go to 10-3. and three. Packers later that night go to 10-3, and three, and there's a pretty big matchup here on Monday night between the Cardinals and the Rams. I go all this way to ask you, Mr. Gannon, Who's the best team in the NFC right now in your mind? Well, I think you point out the three teams that would be certainly uh, under consideration. I think Arizona's played really well. We probably don't talk enough about Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury and the job that they've done. They've got a lot of playmakers on both sides of the ball. Aaron Rodgers, is, they're, perfect. they're a perfect 6-0 and at home. But the team that I think is probably the best team right now is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And they're not even playing as well as they did defensively in December of last year where they really took off. And I just think if they can get a little bit healthier in the secondary, you know, Tom Brady's really the X factor when you think about it, Tim. He's probably going to win the MVP award. Look at the numbers he's put up. I mean, he leads the National Football League in attempts, yards, completions, touchdowns, and, and he's taking good care of the football. I think the Bucks will be a tough out come January. Yeah, he looks like a wee bit of a favorite to win the MVP right now at, at minus 150. There are some great divisional matchups. Uh, one of the things you and I talked about uh, last week was where the Ravens were because of their injuries. And we talked about moral victories for the Buffalo Bills. I, I thought the Ravens were in deep trouble. They made that game close. They had an opportunity to win that game with their backup quarterback. And it looks like Lamar Jackson is going to be okay. Are the Ravens going to be okay? I think you're right about them being in trouble. They've lost three of the last five games, and they've got a scoring issue, and they've got a protection issue. They're not doing a good enough job protecting the quarterback. They give, they're scoring just 16 points 
a game during that five-game stretch. The quarterback's getting hit too much. Uh, you, you look at their – when they don't protect the quarterback and, and teams are starting to pressure them more, it goes back to what the Dolphins did to them five weeks ago, Tim. And I think when you don't handle the pressure, you see an inordinate amount of pressure. And that's what you're starting to see. Teams crowd the line of scrimmage. Teams starting to bring six- and seven-man pressures. And the Ravens haven't shown that they can handle it. And as a former quarterback, I can tell you, if you don't show these defensive coordinators that you have answers – you will see it all day long. And that's what's starting to happen with the Ravens. Teams are starting to blitz Lamar Jackson. All right, two teams you know pretty well. Was the biggest mistake of the weekend the Raiders dancing or congregating on the Chiefs logo? I think it shows a lack of maturity on the part of certain players. I, you know, look, if, if you have half the team going in that direction, I mean, you can't, you know, you have to follow. But I think, you know, you look at, Yannick Ngakwe, that, that was a that was an immature thing to do with one of the letter, veteran leaders on the team. Look, th- that game was over before it started. I mean, a- as if the Chiefs needed any incentive. It, it, they, they scored they scored 35 points in the first half. That's more than they've scored in nine games this season. I mean, they scored on defense. They scored offensively. I mean, special teams. It was a, it was a complete whitewashing, and it's. You got two teams heading in opposite directions. The Chiefs have won six straight games during that stretch. They've given up just 10 points a game, and they've got 16 takeaways. The Raiders, on the other hand, they've lost five of their last six. And unfortunately, Tim, we've seen this too often from the yeah. Raiders. They get off to good starts, and then they stumble in the second half of the season. I think for the third straight year, this team, after having a really good first half of the season, will fail to make the playoffs, and I think there'll be some significant changes coming in Las Vegas. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, but how how in the good name of Andy Reid's mustache has the Chiefs defense flipped the script like this? Well, remember, two years ago when they won the Super Bowl, their defense did not play particularly well in the first half of the season. Steve Spagnola was in the first, first year as a defense coordinator. They started playing better. Chris Jones came on. They started making more plays in the yeah. secondary. The corners played better. And I think we're starting to see that right now. This is a good defense. They get good pressure on you. They've got some players that can cover on the back end, particularly the corners. Tyron Matthew is a handful. He can play at all three levels of the defense. And you've got a quarterback. This is crazy that I'm even saying this. Patrick Mahomes, he's turned the ball over just three times in the last six games. So he's cutting down on the mistakes. You're getting better play out of the defense. They're only giving up 10.5 points a game. I mean, it is the it is the perfect formula for success. I think a, a team that that is destined to get back to an AFC championship game. All right, Rich, I pride myself on actually watching games, like sitting down, watching games, doing some replay work every once in a while, studying a little tape. But admittedly, yesterday I was watching the Grey Cup a lot of the time, and I had the Red Zone channel on, which is kind of sort of sacrilegious for me because you only see the highlights. But I I flipped over, or at least my attention was flipped over, and I saw Dak Prescott in another one of those big divisional games throw a bad interception, up 13, game could be done. He throws a pick six, and all of a sudden, Washington's got a chance to win that football game. Did that say something about Dak Prescott, or is that just a one-off mistake that he can't make? I think it says something about Dak. Look, the Cowboys are 3-3 three and three since he returned from the calf injury. He's not playing nearly as well as he did the first six weeks of the season. I think there's a direct correlation, Tim, between their ability to run the ball successfully and some of the big shots that come off of play action. If it weren't for their defense, the defense has really played well here in the last three or four and weeks. Getting and they're getting healthy. Yeah. They're getting healthy. You're getting some of those pass rushers back. No one's been able to block Micah Parsons. 
And I just think that's been kind of the saving grace. But there's no question that Dak Prescott needs to play better. Two interceptions yesterday, including that fourth quarter pick six that you mentioned. They were lucky. I mean, they, they, that game shouldn't have, shouldn't have even been close. And the Cowboys allowed the, the Washington Football Club to hang around. The Cowboys have some work to do, and I think a lot of it starts on offense with Dak Prescott. Shout out the Canadian kid, Neville Gallimore, also returning to that defense for the Dallas Cup. Hey, speaking of, I'm talking about the Grey Cup. I'm talking about a Canadian kid in the middle of that Cowboys defense. Did, did the CFL ever flirt with Rich Gannon? Because you would have been a perfect CFL quarterback. Well, Tim, you know I'm a huge CFL fan. I try and watch the games when I can. I love the wide open play, the style of football, the three downs. I actually, after the 93 season, I had shoulder surgery. I had a rehab. I missed a year. I actually went to Dallas and worked out for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And they actually offered me a contract. And I, I gave it strong consideration. And, and at the same time, the Kansas City Chiefs came along and offered me a contract. I had just had my first child. Uh, my wife was interested in kind of staying in the Midwest. But I love the CFL. There's so, I think about Warren Moon. I think about Doug Flutie, Michael Clemens. Uh, so many really good players up there. Mark Trestman, a good friend of mine, has won a couple Great Cup yeah. championships. Yeah. So I, I just uh, I, I think it's I think it's an exciting brand of football, and I know there's a lot of folks down here uh, in the states that that love watching the CFL. It, it's funny because I hear you say that, and I have NFL friends, uh, our NFL fans that are friends who tell me, ah, the CFL is garbage. So from a former NFL MVP. You have respect for what goes on in this league. I love it, and I, I think it's amazing. You know, you look at the, so the quality of the players, particularly some of the quarterbacks. I think the game would have been perfect for my skill set. I mean, it's wide open. You've got quarterbacks that can extend plays that are athletic, that can run around. Yeah. Um, you got the you got the width of the field. I mean, the length of the field. I mean, it's 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 a it's a it's a dynamic, explosive game to watch. And I think some of these people that 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 don't simply understand the rules, I yeah. think maybe have a little bit of uh, trouble understanding just how good of a game it is up there in Canada. Tell me you don't know football without saying you don't know football. Crush the CFL. There's an NFL MVP telling you that it's real. <laughs> uh, Rich, always great talking football with you, whether it's north or south of the border. Thanks for doing this as always. You're the best, brother. You too. There is uh, Rich Gannon, our former NFL MVP. See? I, I'm honestly at this like I've defended the CFL so much that I think I'm done, and I'm just going to say, tell me you don't know football without saying you don't know football. Well, it's the off season now. You don't have to talk about it very much. <laughs> That's true too. <laughs> All right, time for one last break. We'll get the last call. Mr. Rubinoff back in the mix, as if he's ever gone. Then off to hometown hockey, Sydney, Nova Scotia, with Ron McLean and Tara Sloan. Welcome back to Tim and Friends, our Monday tip of the cap. I feel like I gotta say that in an Irish accent. Tip of the cap. Freddie Van Vliet, who today announced the creation of a new scholarship for black and indigenous students at the University of Toronto. In addition to providing financial support, Freddie Van Vliet also committed to mentoring the selected recipient. And if you saw anything about his podcast over the next little while, you know that he's had uh, interest in this for a while. He posted this video on social media earlier today.
Um, this scholarship is important um, because it's going to shine light on some of those who may be uh, underserved or underprivileged in certain communities and aspects. We know there's a selection process to a lot of different scholarships and sometimes that counts people out. Um, we're just trying to make a concerted effort to shine light on those who may have not gotten the proper opportunity. Mentorship is, is big and it's a big thing that you learn the later that you get on in your life. Time goes on, you, you realize how important it is. Just having somebody in your corner who can kind of guide you, give you that reassurance or direction in certain areas that you may need to improve. I would love for this scholarship to be the catalyst uh, to start a young person's career, that platform that they need to get access to the resources and the information and the education. Hopefully they go on to do um, many bright and, and uh, important things. In youth we learn, in age we understand, and uh, more than just words for Freddie Van Vliet. He is putting it into action, and that is unbelievable. By the way, the podcast, Bet on Yourself, uh, had a bunch of, uh, including CFL receiver mm -hmm. Nate Mahart was on that, uh, on that uh, podcast. So I just, Freddie Van Vliet, to me, is the personification of a, a well-thought-out dude who is constantly doing things and not just saying them. And this was another piece of action from Freddie as opposed to just words. Yeah, I mean, he's pretty good at the words, though. He's the one that's always answering the, the questions on the podium after the game and uh, faces the music. And, and this is, I mean, just a fantastic gesture from Freddie Van Vliet, a leader for the Raptors and a leader in the community as well. By the way, also, um, our friend Mark Spears uh, wrote a column on Freddie Van Vliet and what he's doing in the community. So if you want to check that out yeah. as well. I thought you were going to talk about the wines that you got. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, he finally got the wines. Did he open it? Bet. I saw he, he took a picture of the wines. The yeah. two sisters. Two sisters vineyards in Niagara was uh, the two bottles of wine that I had, uh, right. I had sent from a friend of mine who crossed the border because I couldn't get him across the border. So hopefully uh, Spearsy enjoyed those. Yeah, when you were gone, when you were on vacation, he came on and he was oh, he was not happy. Yeah, and I, I stepped up to the plate. I defended you. I said, "Look, he's been trying to get it. He's been trying to get it to you." And then he said, "Didn't the Raptors just come to California?" <laughs> that was his, and I had yeah. nothing to say. Shut it's, me up real quick. He was in New Orleans when the Raptors were in California. So why would you send it to California? That yeah, I actually had someone uh, who was following the Leafs. Send the bottles away. Right. So there you it go. was like they were in California like two days later, I think. <laughs> Wanted him to make sure that you knew or that you were trying to get the wine <laughs> bottles down there. For, for those who don't know, I bet on the field with, with some odds yeah. against USA basketball in the men's tournament in Tokyo. Damn KD. Uh, Tim McAuliffe always pays his debts. Um, okay. Took the, a while, though. Took a while. The Toronto Raptors finishing off a seven-game homestand tonight against the Sacramento Kings before a visit to Brooklyn tomorrow after a win Friday night against the Knicks. The Raptors are now 12 and 14 on the season. So what have you learned or are you hoping to learn during this stretch for the Raps? Okay, this is uh, this is short-term, long-term, and it's got to do with that dude, that 4-3, Pascal Siakam. There, there's a part of me that understands. We brought it up. This is a great, uh, we're going to go cross-reference here, and I don't normally do this with basketball because it pisses fans off in this country, but do you remember when the Leafs were done with Phil Kessel and they traded him to Pittsburgh? Mm -hmm. We just brought it up with Jim Rutherford. Mm -hmm. This is why I'm bringing it up. And he wins two cups there as the third dude. A very valuable third dude that could have won the Conn Smythe yeah. in one, if not both, of those years. 
Pascal Siakam is a great player when surrounded by other great players. You need him because you don't want to put Freddie in that spot immediately and you don't want to put Scotty Barnes in that spot immediately. But I don't know how much longer, just like the Pacers are making a decision with two really good players, or it seems like they're making it with Turner mm -hmm. and Sabonis, the Raptors are going to have to make the same decision with Pascal Siakam. Either get him good established players around him or move him to a spot where he can be second or third because we've seen it, he is that good. But on this team, at this time, the timing is just off. And I, I wonder if the Raptors might not pull the trigger because they've got to play this game right now where it's his value and whether or not it's hurt by continuing to play with this team. That's a really good uh, comparison to the Pacer situation. Uh, because I haven't thought about it like that because Turner and Sabonis, both very good players, both young and part of the core but the Pacers are choosing to go in a different direction it sounds like because they're not they're not there because they're not there sort of where the Raptors and are part of this is when you time your build and who you need to to take the the slack because if it wasn't Siakam it would be Barnes yeah and you want Barnes to be able to grow without having to shoulder all that because you've seen what shouldering it can cause and that's part of Siakam's problem I think is that it's been tough for him to handle being the dude. Do you think the frustration from fans is that he gets paid to be the dude? Yeah, but that's, that's, it's ridiculous. It's not his fault. You know, Chris Middleton without Giannis Antetokounmpo is just not good enough. Right. He's an NBA champion. But if it was him alone, they wouldn't be near good enough and you would kill Chris Middleton. It's every team, like LeBron James needed the big three in Miami, right? Like mm -hmm. he literally needed Chris mm -hmm. Bosh and Dwayne Wade to help. And yet every year in the NBA, we forget about that. And to me, it's kind of sort of ridiculous. And who cares what he's getting paid? The goal is either surround him with better players or move on and get players that can get it done. That's it. Love it. Sticking with the NBA, Steph Curry will take another shot at history tonight when the Warriors visit those Pacers that we just discussed. You can see it on Sportsnet 1 at 7 Eastern. Curry now six three-pointers back of Ray Allen's all-time record. I said he would do it in one game. That was very wrong. You said he'd do or I think Ken said it. He'd do it in two. That was also wrong. Does he break the record tonight? I feel like Curry and Kerr both said they shouldn't have been talking about <laughs> yeah, Curry did, in the yeah. one game. Uh, it's great, though. They've got the Pacers, the Knicks, the Celtics, and the Raptors all on the road. Indiana, obviously, the home of Reggie Miller, who once had the record before Ray Allen broke it. And then the Celtics on Friday. Ray Allen broke the record while with the Celtics, even though he spent the most of his, or, or the bulk of his career uh, either in Milwaukee or Miami. So it's, it's really interesting to see where they're going next. And any one of those places, MSG would be cool. Yeah. Gets the Raptors on Saturday. And obviously spent time in Toronto, won a grade eight title in Toronto. So maybe that's a good place to break it. I think he breaks it next game. I think he breaks it in his end. Yeah. I mean, I, it, he is so good and fun to watch that it's it's like you, you want him to do it tonight. Yeah, because he's, I want to see him hit seven he's threes. Good for the NBA. He's, Does someone call a timeout? Like, is it an official's timeout after he hits the one to break the record? Yeah, I think so. Because what's crazy about this is that, like, Think of how long, I know the game's changed, but he changed it. Yeah. Right? Like, totally. Think of how long it took Ray Allen to set that record and put up the numbers he's going to put up and where Steph is in his career. Like, he's got years to go. The number's going to be incredible by the time he's done. He made it reasonable to take 10 threes a game. 
Yeah, or make 10 Or make 10 threes again, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Hockey Canada announced its final world junior roster on Sunday. Shane Wright and Cole Perfetti headline the roster, which also includes 16-year-old Regina Pat Center Connor Bedard. He's just the seventh 16-year-old to ever make the Canadian world junior team. What is the most impressive thing you did as a 16-year-old, Tim? <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of right answers to that. Uh, there's a lot of wrong answers to that. Uh, I will say it's got nothing as close to what Bedard is doing. Right <laughs> that was uh, sidestepping the question. That is sidestepping yeah, the question. That's okay. Uh, those were my injury years. I, I tore my ACL, broke my leg, and separated my shoulder in three straight years. Uh, my grade 11, 12, and 13 years in high school. So there wasn't a hell of a lot going on at 16 besides a luxurious head of hair. But for Bedard to make this list that includes McDavid, like, it's like a who's who who have played for Canada at the age of 16. I thought Shane Wright should have made the team last year. And to watch those two players play together this year, the future captain of the Montreal Canadiens, Shane Wright, <laughs> and Connor Bedard, it'll be funny to say. Uh, Stefan uh, Morin said that earlier. Doesn't it? I just uh, stole it, so. Doesn't I'm it feel, give him full credit. Doesn't it feel like the best part about the World Junior Tournament is watching those young guys and how they stack up with it everybody else? Stefan. Oh my god. That's Sebastian. He, yeah. Did you make he, excuse? He knows what you meant. It's a Monday. It's Monday. But watching like Crosby, watching. He doesn't even care about my point. He doesn't care about my point. You okay. got 15 seconds to make it, cut. McDavid, Crosby, Lafreniere, Bedard. Watching those guys at the World Juniors is my favorite part about it. That's it. That's my point. Sebi? So I didn't listen to you? No, that's okay. Now you know how I feel. Ooh. Time for another Ooh. one, kids. Ooh. Rogers Hometown Hockey, Sydney, Nova Scotia, is up next on Sportsnet. At least you got the cameraman's name right. Don't worry about that. <laughs> We've got the Warriors and the Pacers on Sportsnet. One Steph Curry aims. For the three-point record, followed by the Suns and the Clippers. Bucks and Celtics is on Sportsnet. WWE Monday Night Raw coming up on 360. We'll talk to you tomorrow.